I will be reading today from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is the story of where Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. For us good Canadians, that's over 281 liters. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Varsity Bible Church. Um, here when I'm recording, it is evening, and who knows, maybe you are also engaging with us in the afternoon or evening. So I wish you a good day, whatever time of day it is. My name is Jenna, and I am the Office Administrator at Varsity Bible Church, and today I have the privilege of continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of John. Now before I get into the text that Jenna so beautifully read, I want to go back to John 1, where John starts his book with a prologue. And I specifically want to look at John 1, verses 14, that says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now the reason why I want to start here is because in this prologue, John is developing themes that he's going to continue to come back through throughout the rest of his book. And this theme that I want to particularly look at is the theme of glory and how God's glory is revealed through the life of Jesus specifically. And the reason why I'm looking at glory as opposed to other themes that John brings up, like light that Renus looked at last week, is that at the end of our text it reads, This was the first sign through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so John, when summarizing this story, kind of when explaining why he added this story, he said it was because the disciples saw his glory. And the larger purpose of the book of John is so that we may believe. So John added this, this story to the gospel with a particular purpose of showing Jesus' glory and showing his glory so that we may believe and have life in his name. But before I get into our text, I just want to pause and look at the word glory. I think this is a word that we often use a lot in the church, 
um, to describe Jesus and God, but is not really a word that we use outside of the church. And so sometimes without using it in multiple contexts, we can kind of lose its meaning. So I took the liberty to look up the word and some synonyms. And so glory can also mean splendor or excellence or amazingness. And so in the story, we see the disciples, they witnessed this miracle and they saw his glory and they believed. And now what I find interesting about this story is that it was God's glory, Jesus' glory that compelled the disciples to believe. But I can't exactly say that's my experience. I grew up in the church and I'm very familiar with the stories. I grew up, I went to a Christian kindergarten and was told all the stories about the Old Testament and about Jesus. And as I grew older, I asked questions and, and got answers to those questions and felt convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, that this, this scripture was truth. Um, and so this idea of Jesus as glorious, as amazing, is an idea that I struggle a little bit more with. And I'm not quite sure that I always see Jesus as amazing just because of the way I grew up. I think that I actually see him as rather serious, if I'm being honest. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, he seems like a pretty serious guy. He tells us stories and teachings of how he wants us to live our lives and live it according to the kingdom. And, and that's hard and that seems like serious business. And so this Jesus that's amazing and glorious seems a little bit more foreign to me. And you know, if I'm actually being honest, I'm not sure that I think about Jesus a lot, serious or not in my day-to-day -day life. I often think of the chores that I have to do or what's going to be for supper or the work that I'm doing. I don't think a lot about Jesus. And I think part of this reason that I don't think about Jesus a lot is that I don't know if I understand fully his glory. So you see, this last summer I listened to an audiobook called Where the Crawdads Sing. And you may have read this book or listened to this book yourself. And um, I really enjoyed this book. And as I read it, I was enveloped in the story and I was captivated. And even when it had finished, it was for several days, it was the only thing I could think about because of how amazing it was. And maybe you have an experience like this too. Maybe you've read a book or watched a movie or taken a trip that was amazing. And even after it was over, it was the only thing you could think about. And even today, you still think about it. And now Jesus, we are told, is supposed to be infinitely more amazing than any of these things that we experience, but we often give him little thought. And again, I think it's because sometimes we fail to understand his glory. And I think this is what John is trying to get at as he's writing this story in this gospel. He wants us to know and understand Jesus's glory, because it is understanding his glory that will get us through the hard times. It is knowing him personally and knowing how amazing he is that will get us through a pandemic, that will get us through when we lose our job or when we experience tough people and we see the disciples' lives, we're transformed by his glory. And so John wants to give us a window into Jesus's glory. And I hope that I can do that too. Give us a glimpse of Jesus's glory. So then how does this story 
show Jesus's glory. So here we're going to get into the text. And I think this story shows Jesus's glory in three ways. It shows who Jesus is. It shows us what he has come to do. And it shows us what he has come to offer. So I'll start with the first one. Who is Jesus? Now, as I look at this text, I'm going to approach it by asking questions, because I think that it's important as we read scripture to ask questions. And maybe some of the questions I have, you will have had yourself. And so hopefully along the way, we can answer some of these questions. And so my first question as I approach this is, why this miracle? You see, Jesus turns water into wine. And it's said that this is his first sign, his first miracle. But but why this miracle? I mean, if you look at the other miracles of Jesus, um, I mean, it is a miracle, it is amazing, but it seems a little less amazing than some of the other stuff he's done, like raise someone from the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. Wouldn't it have been maybe more impactful on his ministry or say more about his ministry if he had started with raising Lazarus? Doesn't that say more about his kingdom than changing some water into some wine for a party? And I know that there are cultural implications to running out of wine at a Jewish wedding feast, that it meant a lot more to them than it does now. So it's not unimportant, but at the end of the day, the family would have lost some reputation no one would have died, actually. And there are miracles that Jesus literally brings people back to life. So why this miracle? Why now? And I think this seems like an underwhelming miracle when we think of it along the other miracles. But it's not so underwhelming when you think of it in terms of that God, he is in the business of weddings. So you see, let's look at John Two verses 9 through 10. See, the servants are pulling out this water that has been turned into wine, and they are giving it to the master of the banquet, who is kind of like the master of ceremonies at a wedding. He's just the guy in charge of making sure everyone has fun. And so this master of the ceremony sees, takes a sip of this wine, and he immediately commends the bridegroom, saying how amazing this wine was and how the bridegroom had saved the best wine to last. But you and I both know it wasn't the bridegroom that provided this wine. That you know, for whatever reason, out of poverty or lack of planning, he was not able to provide the wine. He did not provide the wine. But then Jesus, we see, comes and takes the place of the bridegroom and provides the wine. You see, the story is saying that Jesus is the good bridegroom in the way that the human bridegroom was unable to, to fulfill his duty. Jesus is fully able to fulfill his duty. So who is Jesus? He is the good bridegroom. But now I go back to my first question. Why is this the first miracle? I didn't fully answer that. And so I want to look at this in light of all of Jesus's ministry. As we follow through Jesus's ministry, we see that pretty quickly that life following Jesus is not going to be easy. Jesus's life wasn't easy, and he calls people 
to lay down their lives. He calls people out of their comfort zones and to do things, to step out in faith, and none of this is easy. And he even says that we'll be persecuted for following him. And it's going to be hard. And Jesus knew it was going to be hard. So Jesus's first sign is one of joy. And if we look at the end, if we look at, if we go forward in time and look at Revelation, you see this sign that Jesus performed, it was a foreshadowing of what is to come. I think it's important to note that it was not just a miracle, although it was, it was also a sign. And so we look in Revelation 19, and in Revelation 19, which is near the climax of the whole book of the whole story, we see that there is a wedding feast, and it mentions that those that are invited to the wedding feast are blessed. And at this wedding feast, Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are his bride, and it is a celebration of joy. Things that were once broken have now been made whole. And I think this says that Jesus is committed to our joy. The very first thing that he wanted us to know is that he is committed to our joy, and he himself is joyful. And here, in this picture, I have um, a picture titled The Laughing Christ, which Rena showed me when I was preparing for this sermon. And I like this picture because, as I said before, I typically think of Jesus as pretty serious. But here, in this picture, you can see a different side of Jesus, a happiness, a merriment, a joyfulness that we don't typically see represented in the art that's around of Jesus. And I think this shows this side of Jesus well, that he is a God of joy, and he is committed to our joy. He is the good bridegroom, and he is committed to our joy. In the same way that he provided wine for the feast in excess and abundance, um, whatever Janice said, with 400 liters, he provided in excess and abundance. He is ready to provide us joy in excess and abundance. So who is Jesus? He is the joyful and good bridegroom. And now we come to our second point. What has Jesus come to do? So again, I'm going to look at this text and ask, ask some questions. So at the beginning of the story, we see Mary come to Jesus and tell him that there is no longer any wine, with some expectation that Jesus is going to do something about this. Um, and you might ask, why was Mary bringing this problem to Jesus? And we just came out of a season of Advent where we talked about the miraculous circumstances of Jesus' birth. And may I remind you that Mary was there for those miraculous circumstances. She knew Jesus. She knew that he was the Messiah, like the angels had told her. And she had spent years raising him, years walking with him and being with him. She knew Jesus and his goodness and kindness and tenderness. And she sees a problem. There's no wine at this wedding. And she comes and presents it to Jesus, a thing that I think we can learn a thing or two about from ourselves. Um, but as she goes to Jesus, she says there is no more wine. And Jesus answers rather strangely. He essentially says, woman, my hour has not come. Now, what kind of answer is this? And it is more confusing when you keep on reading the story and Jesus then goes to fix the problem that Mary wanted in the first place. So it sounds like he said no to Mary and then he went on and did it anyways. Why would he do this? And I think the key 
is in the phrase, my hour. You see, this phrase is used four other times in the book of John. And each time this phrase is used, he's using it specifically to refer to his death. And so when Mary asks, or Mary states, there is no wine, he says, it's not my time to die. But again, weird answer, that's not the question that Mary asked. Why would Jesus answer this way? And I think we have to look at what wine is to Jesus to get this answer. So we're going to look forward to Luke, forward in the story, look back in the Bible, to the Passover meal. So Jesus is with his disciples, it's the Last Supper, and he takes the cup, the cup of wine that is before him, and says, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As I mentioned earlier, I talked about at the end of times there being a wedding feast and how Jesus has invited us to this wedding feast, that those that come are blessed, we are fortunate, we are lucky to be invited to this wedding feast. But to get to this wedding feast, it required sacrifice, it required blood, it required Jesus' blood. And so when Mary says, can you provide the wine, Jesus hears, can you die? Can you provide the blood that is necessary for us to come into the wedding feast? And Jesus then responds, it's not my hour, it is not his time yet to provide that sacrifice. But what he does provide is a symbol of his death to come. And so the way he creates this miracle, the way the circumstances under which this miracle happen, he gets the servants to get ceremonial washing jars. So these ceremonial washing jars I don't think are insignificant. So um, these ceremonial washing jars typically in Jewish culture were filled with water and Jewish people used them to cleanse themselves before they entered the temple. Um, it was part of the Levitical law to be able to present yourself as pure before God and they used this water to cleanse themselves. And it was in these jars that Jesus took water a representation of how these Jewish people could enter the presence of God and turned it into wine, turned it into his blood, the symbol of his blood. And it's his blood that cleanses us so that we can enter into the presence of God, that so we can be in relationship with God. And I think this image gains even more significance when we look back into the Old Testament and we look at a messianic figure, Moses, because Jesus wasn't the first person to turn water into blood. Moses, during his ministry, or during at the beginning of his ministry, the first plague that happens in Egypt, he turns water into blood through God's power. And this blood was a curse to the Egyptians. And we know that Moses wasn't the Messiah. We know the rest of the story. But then here the true Messiah comes, and he also turns water into blood, into wine, again the symbol of his blood, but this time it is a blessing because it is this blood that covers us, that cleanses us, so that we as a church, as followers of Christ, can be the worthy bride. We are made righteous through Jesus' blood and can enter in and be in relationship with our God, our Father. Jesus is making us a worthy bride. And in John 1, also in our prologue, it says that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses, when he created water into blood, 
you know, it was, it was temporary. It was, it was a sign of the old covenant of needing blood to, to enter into the presence of God, of sacrifice, a curse. And then here Jesus is and he comes with a blessing. So what has Jesus come to do? He has come to cleanse us with his blood so that we can enter into relationship with him and be a worthy bride. And so last, we're going to look at my last question. What has Jesus come to offer? So why does this story matter? What does this story have to do with us here at Varsity Bible Church in the 21st century? Now, I want to point out how interesting it is that what is used for symbols of salvation and the new earth are not boring things like, you know, the new earth isn't a court of law. It's not waiting in line at the registry office. It's not a board meeting. It's a wedding. And for Jews at the time, weddings were the pinnacle of joy and enjoyment. And he uses wine as the symbol for salvation. Again, if you think back to Jewish culture and the importance of wine in celebrations. So these are both images of joy. And this is wonderful news. Because you see, at the end of the story, the disciples believed. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They saw his glory. And they knew that he was the one that was promised to save them. Um, and they were given life. And you see that these disciples, they, they continued to live with joy. Their lives were changed as you continue to read the story and read beyond Jesus's life as they lived beyond. They continued to understand Jesus's glory and as a result were able to live in that joy, were able to live out of that joy. You look at Paul who didn't encounter Jesus's glory here but encountered it on the way to Damascus and his life was forever transformed and changed because he knew the joy of what was to come. And he goes through shipwrecks and stonings and persecution, and people want to kill him, but he still lives with joy. And we see Peter, who at a moment in Acts is put into jail and flogged, and right after can sing praises to God because he knows Jesus' glory. He knows how amazing he is and the joy that is set before him. And now, do we believe? Do we believe in this Jesus that has set out a kingdom of joy? Because sometimes this can be hard to see because we don't live at the end and we weren't there at the beginning. We live in this tension of already but not yet. When life is hard, there is suffering and pain and death, despair. And sometimes it can be hard to live knowing that there is a banquet ahead of us. Um, and I think John knew this when he wrote this and was giving this story to us as a reminder, a reminder that there is joy to come, that there's a feast awaiting us, a feast that is full of hope and love and there will be no more brokenness and pain. And he has given us that ability to live in that joy now. And because we know how our story ends, we know that our story ends with a great feast, with great joy, we can live differently in this space of not yet, in this space, in this liminal space where we're kind of in between. The disciples, when they believed, they didn't believe in a passive way, but in one that, that as I said before, 
prompted action in their lives, prompted change in their lives. And we can do this too. And I want to illustrate this through this clip. Um, and this clip is from a movie called About Time, and you may have seen it yourself. And all you really need to know about this movie is that it's about a man and his father who are able to travel back in time in their life. And so if they make a mistake, they can go back in time, fix the mistake. Like I think there's one part in the movie where he spills a drink on someone. He goes back in time and doesn't spill the drink. So that's kind of the gist of it. And in this clip, you're going to see this man, he's going to live the same day two times. And what I want you to pay attention is how he lives his life the second time. So here is the clip. I have something very important to tell you, or let me check. Do you want to know the big secret, or would you rather find it out for yourself like I did? There's another secret. Less dramatic, much more important. The real mothership. Oh, go on. Tell me. Let's save some time. And so he told me his secret formula for happiness. Part one of the two-part plan was that I should just get on with ordinary life, living it day by day like anyone else. This is our statement was revised with that paragraph there, highlighted. Rupert, Rupert, is that the best you can do? No. No, but absolutely not. We can change that. Item number two. Uh, Good afternoon, sir. Eating in or taking away today? Um, take away. Yeah? No problem. Lovely, that's 424 then, please, sir. Thank you kindly. Thank you. Hello there. Are you eating in or taking away? Do you find the defendant, John Welbeck, guilty or not guilty of fraud? Not guilty. And that is the verdict of you all? Yes. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank God. Let the defendant be discharged. Be upstanding in court. Then came part two of Dad's plan. He told me to live every day again, almost exactly the same. The first time with all the tensions and worries that stop us noticing how sweet the world can be. But the second time, noticing. Okay, Dad. Let's give it a go. Yeah, no problem. Would you like a bath? 
So not such a bad day after all. No. It's pretty good, really. Very good day, actually, as it turns out. So, as we saw here, when he lived his life a second time, he lived it differently. And it's not that he lived it differently in the way that he, he didn't change any of his actions from the first time to the second time. The only thing that changed was his perspective, the way that he saw his life around him. And he was able to change that perspective because he had already lived the day before. He knew how the day was going to go, and he knew how it ended, and it ended okay. And now you and I, we, we can't travel back in time and redo our days. We don't know how each day is going to end, but we do know how our story is going to end. We know that it ends in great joy. We know that it ends with a feast. And we can live with overflowing joy, even here. We can live with joy in the face of hardship because we know of the joy that is set before us. We can live generously because we know there is much awaiting us. And we can live in the face of uncertainty because we know that our future is certain. There is a joyous feast awaiting us, friends. There is much joy, and Jesus has brought us in. He has invited us to the wedding feast. And we can look forward in anticipation to that time, but while we live here, in the already but not yet, we can still live in that joy, knowing what is to come. And so Jesus is amazing and glorious. He is magnificent. He is everything that we could want and more. And he has given us everything we could want and more. So who is Jesus? He is the good and joyful bridegroom. What has he come to do? He has come to cleanse us and give us a seat at the table. And what has he come to offer? He has come to offer us joy, not only in the future, but joy now. So now I want to enter into a time of communion. So you can take this time and pause the video and grab your elements if you haven't already gotten them. And I want us to consider, as we celebrate communion together, um, what these symbols mean. So typically, when we look at communion, we look backwards. We look at Jesus' sacrifice and the way that he has, the things that he has done to make it possible for us to be in relationship with him. And those things are good, and keep those things in mind. But today, I also want us to look forward, because these symbols the wine and the bread are also symbols of the feast 
that is to come, of what is yet to come. He cleansed us from our sins with his blood, that is the wine. And let us look forward to the wedding feast that we can attend because of his sacrifice. Let us look and anchor our hope and our joy in that feast, because that will never change. This feast, this symbol, is only a taste of what is to come. We wait together for the great wedding banquet. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are glorious, that you are amazing and you have done amazing things for us, that you have cleansed us, that you are the good bridegroom and and that the wine will never run out, the salvation will never run dry. For those of us that come to you, you offer us a seat at the table. You cleanse us. And Father, I pray that as we enter into this time of communion, that we will experience your joy, that we will know your joy and the joy that is set before us. And as we take these elements, let us consider the sacrifice that you made um, to make that seat available. Thank you, Father, for the ways that you are working in us and through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.